Uh, so it sounds like, um, John, you made a really great enzyme that had origins from the eagle, um, <laughs> but no eagles were harmed in, in the process, just to be clear. Hi, I'm LC, and I'm a storyteller. I'm a passionate chemist who loves to explore and tell stories about how chemistry can change the world. And I'm Danny, and I'm LC's spirited chemistry co-host. I love to bring high energy and positivity to my chemistry, but also my life. Welcome to the Farm to Table Podcast. We're two chemists working at the pharmaceutical company Merck in the U.S. Also known as MSD everywhere else in the world except Canada, the U.S., and its territories. And this is a podcast where we'll tell you stories about the people and the science behind the papers published by our chemistry group. Each week, we'll pick one to two papers that we recently published and introduce you to the key people behind it, and also ask them to give you a unique insight into the story behind it. So welcome, folks, to the Farm to Table podcast. This is actually season two. We made it a full season. LC, congratulations. Woohoo! And this is episode one, and we are honored today to have Nostron and John here in the house to talk about biocatalysis once again. I believe this is our third Biocat featured episode. It is a fan favorite, so we thought no better way to bring it back than for season two. And today we're going to dive into a kinase seagas cascade to synthesize a therapeutic sting activator, which was the subject of two papers this year, one in Nature and one in Jax. And so Nostron and John, welcome to the podcast. So Nostron, um, how about we start with you first? Why don't you introduce yourself, who you are, what you do at Merck, and maybe something fun that the audience would like to hear about. Sure. Uh, hi, everyone. My name is Nastaran Salehi. Some people call me a Naz. Um, I received my bachelor degree from Sharif University in Iran. Then I uh, moved to U.S. to pursue my graduate studies. Um, I received my PhD from Michigan State um, University, worked uh, in Professor Babak Borhan's lab. Uh, then in 2016, uh, I joined Merck um, Process Chemistry Department. Um, so something like interesting fact about me, um, work related, um, I can say that I also did a one year rotation in chemical engineering group last year before I come, come back to process chemistry department and something not work related. Uh, I have a, an adorable golden doodle dog that I really like. So that's about me. So what is your dog's name? Bella. Oh, that's a pretty name. Very cute. Nice. Um, Nostron is also on Twitter. And if you want to check out the nature that she encounters, go for that too. She has, what, bears in, in your backyard and all that crazy? Yeah, we have it's, it's different sort of animals. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. All right. Thanks, Nostron. Uh, John, how about you uh, You tell us a little bit about yourself, um, who you are, where you're from, what you do at Merck, and uh, some interesting facts about yourself. Sure thing, Elsie. Um, yeah, so um, I've been at Merck uh, since 2015. I've uh, worked in the biocatalysis and protein engineering groups. Um, yeah, before I joined Merck, I was a postdoc in academia, and then before that, you know, grad school, of course. Um, yeah, um, interesting facts about myself. Um, I have pretty limited hobbies. I have, I have two children, ages two and five, and they, they like a lot of attention. So um, in, in kind of spare moments, I can play little play of the ukulele and we, we got a piano ostensibly for the children, but I'm 
dabbling a little bit. So uh, those are kind of all the fun things I do anyway. Nice. I did the same thing. We bought a piano for my kids a while back, and I'm pretty much the only one that uses it now. So (laughs) I can relate to that. Yeah. That's good. All right. So, you know, one of the things that uh, Danny and I thought would be really interesting to ask you guys about is that both of you, um, you know, join work sort of around the same time. And this this project that we're going to talk about today, this this Seagas Cascade was was one of the first projects that you worked on. And given that our audience is is heavily tilted towards graduate students, postdoc, and people that are new to the industry, it would be really cool to hear from you guys uh, to maybe get a sense of the, you know, the one big thing that you had to adapt to when you joined industry and give people a sense of what that transition is like. So Nasran, maybe you could, you could kick us off. Sure. Um, So yeah, just to confirm, uh, that's right. This program was the first project that I worked on when I joined Merck. Um, I was super excited. Um, so some of the things that um, maybe I can say about adopting to work is in an industrial environment is, um, so during my PhD, I never worked on um, the similar problems that I started working on when I joined Meg. For example, working on cyclic dinoclotide synthesis um, or phosphorus chemistries, right? And uh, also l- looking at enzymatic reactions. So these are all the things that was new to me. And it was actually great because I learned a lot, um, especially like from my collaboration with John, uh, which he was in the biocatalysis at the time. So it was a great experience for me. Um, again, I think that's what I try. I want to say is that um, we shouldn't expect that we will work on the same thing that we worked in our graduate studies. It's all about how we solve problems. It's not about um, we do the same thing. So, and also I always look at things like a learning opportunity. So, um, the more collaboration I have, the more things I learn. And that's why I enjoy working at Merck. That's great. John, how about you? Yeah. Um, yeah, I would definitely echo, um, what Nostron said, certainly about, you know, learning and, you know, you know, actually I would really mirror what Nostron said. You know, I definitely felt like I learned a lot from, from you, Nostron, um, you know, when we were together, um, I guess the other thing that kind of sticks out for me is um, just learning to think bigger and just thinking more, um, at least for me. So my, um, you know, the graduate lab I worked in, you know, maybe there was more concern, you know, about budget, certainly, and and trying to, you know, not buy something that's too expensive, Um, you know, whereas, you know, coming to industry, you know, it was much more about, you know, what what's the right thing to do project wise to, to keep the project moving forward. And not kind of having it in the back of your mind, oh, am I, you know, is it, is it buying this radiation too expensive, right? You know, much more just focused on on the science. So, and just in general, learning to think bigger and not, and I think, you know, maybe the lesson a little bit is just, even if, you know, you have constraints, you know, of course, we all have constraints to some degree, is, you know, still trying to think big. And, you know, if, if there ends up being limitations, fine, but, you know, that shouldn't constrain, you know, what we're, you know, th- what we're imagining. So let's dive into these two papers uh, and get into the origin of them. So both of them are focused on cyclic dinucleotides, and I think that's probably going to be a pretty new um, structure for um, for our audience to kind of wrap their head around. So before we jump into the chemistry, can you give our um, audience maybe a better idea about what they are and why they're so important? Yeah, sure. Um, well, yeah, so I guess just starting the basics, so... So what's a nucleotide? So nucleotides are just the building blocks of DNA and RNA. Um, and so in that form, they're arranged in linear polymers. 
Now, cyclic dinucleotide is it's just the same thing, but it's so two, two of those building blocks uh, covalently connected and, and cyclized so that each phosphorus center is disubstituted. Um, it might help to look at a, you know, some Google images while we're talking, but that, that's sort of um, the, the best I can do, I think, um, with words anyway. Um, we'll post on the podcast like a picture. So, okay. when, so, yeah, so when people like watch this, they'll, they'll be able to at least look at their yeah, phones yeah. Look, or whatever. Look at, the, uh, look at the episode description for a nice image of a cyclic dinucleotide. But I mean, the key yeah, thing yeah. is it's a macrocycle, right? So yeah. it's, yeah. Uh, it's a pretty complex looking molecule. Yeah, absolutely. And so anyway, so so, so these are natural products. So natural product CDNs ha, um, have been known from bacteria for quite a long time. And then in 2013, um, biochemists were able to show that actually humans and other animals use cyclic dinucleotides as you know, key signaling molecules. And so it was in 2013, there were two groups simultaneously published um, this result that there was a human enzyme that was called C-GAS, um, which stands for cyclic guanosine adenosine synthase. And that was an enzyme responsible for making a CDN um, that's called 2 prime, 3 prime CGAMP. And so that just um, stands for uh, cyclic guanosine adenosine monophosphate. Um, and what they found was it was really, really important for the immune response. What became really interesting to a lot of uh, pharmaceutical companies uh, was um, you know, this ability to turn on the immune response, right? So, and so around that time, it, you know, I think it was becoming widely appreciated that you know, the immune system is really um, uh, turning on the immune system can be really effective as a treatment for cancer. And so the ability to turn on the immune system, um, you know, in, in certain situations um, was potentially um, viewed as, you know, critical front, you know, further um, augmenting those type of therapies. So that's kind of where a lot of pharmaceutical companies, including Merck, uh, got involved. Yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of a super cool um, sort of, um, detective story, right? You, you detect this molecule. It's been known forever in bacteria. You then find out it's in humans. It doesn't quite make sense. And then all of it sort of comes together. Um, and it's kind of really clever, right? You could imagine how the evolutionary biology of this sort of came about. It's like, you, you know, you, eukaryotic cells don't want to get infected with viruses. And so you need to develop a way to, you know, detect that there might be a viral infection. So it's kind of like a really cool, um, origin story. Um, Nostaran, you know, obviously when our team started exploring this work, um, you know, CDNs were actually really, really hard to make. Um, there was um, sort of a total synthesis reported of one of these CDNs. But, you know, as we started thinking about how to make these things, can you elaborate a little bit more on sort of um, the complexities associated with um, making these molecules? Sure. Um, yeah, at the time, I mean, I was working on this project. Maybe the state of art was making CDNs via phosphorus three chemistry, and then we later on some more publication around phosphorus five. So, for our first delivery um, to support clinical trials, um, we used this P three based chemical approaches to synthesize CDNs. Um, and this original synthesis required nine to 10 steps from protected nucleosides. So I'm not even talking about how many steps uh, there are to make the nucleosides. Just for the microcyclic assembly was nine to 10 steps. And it involved like unstable, moisture sensitive intermediates. Uh, there was like multiple protecting group manipulation, um, which required has, uh, use of hazardous reagents. 
Um, and especially with our molecule, which is a thio-CDN, cyclic dinoclotide, we have a thiophosphate group. We also had to control the phosphorus stereochemistry. Uh, and at that time, we had to rely on reverse phase chromatography uh, to separate the desired diastereomer from the complex mixture. And overall yield was 10 to 20%. So Nastaran, you know, maybe it's worth here taking a little tangent and just elaborating a little bit more about thiophosphate and that structure and why that's chiral um, for our listeners. So can you walk people through sort of what that thiophosphate ester looks like um, and why it's chiral? Yeah, so because uh, the two nucleosides, right, and uh, that, as John mentioned, the structure of cyclic dinoclosides, the phosphate is a uh, disubstituted, right? So we have two different nucleosides connected um, via their alcohol groups to the phosphate. And then instead of a PO double bond, we have a P double bond S. So that way, that's why you have four different groups on the phosphate, makes it uh, chiral. I hope that answered. Oh, yeah. It. Okay. Yeah, that's super clear. <laughs> Thank you. All right, keep going. Yeah. Uh, and also there was, um, I, this is more about the clinical support, right? There was also a big problem for MedChem, right? The nucleosides are generally hard to make and CDNs, uh, with CDNs, there's even more complexity. So this was a big problem for discovery, right? How many speculative nucleosides we can make on a scale to enable end-game microcyclization chemistry. The, the throughput for a structure activity relationship was limited and the process was a slow expensive. So that was like, because of that, and because we were also looking for commercial route development, we looked into alternative chemistry. Yeah, thank you for walking us through how difficult it is to make these. I think that, you know, when you're in discovery chemistry, you have this um, cycle, this design, uh, make, test, that uh, discovery chemists go around to kind of like refine um, refine their hypothesis and eventually get to a drug that they want to take into a clinic. And here, the rate determining step was really the make. And so I thought that, you know, in the Nature paper, John, it was really, um, I think, inspiring on how you went about applying a biocatalytic strategy in order to make these CDNs. And that's actually pretty unusual. So can you, I guess, walk us through why it was so important for this program? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um... Well, yeah, I mean, I think, I think just taking a step back, I mean, so the, the strategy itself was pretty cool um, in the sense that, so, you know, we have this, um, you know, natural pathway that we want to stimulate um, with, a, you know, a synthetic molecule. And so the natural pathway is using this enzyme C-gas uh, to make um, C-GAMP, right? And we're making analogs of C-GAMP. But, you know, and so the idea that, you know, people in discovery chemistry and, you know, biocatalysis had was, wait, can we actually just use this enzyme to make analogs for us, um, the same enzyme that, that nature is using. And so that was kind of the key insight that sort of kicked off that, um, that, that, that sort of like thrust of the discovery chemistry approach. Um, and, you know, so this was uh, super helpful because, you know, it essentially just, you know, provided them with a really modular way of making cyclic dinucleotides um, from, you know, you know, in a very convergent way. And so I guess when I say conversion, you know, just meaning that you know, you're, you're starting from two nucleotide triphosphates. And so nucleotide triphosphates are, you know, commercially available. You know, we had um, plenty of them from other programs at Merck. You know, there's lots of nucleosides that are commercially available and you can make them into triphosphates. So it provided, um, you know, a totally different way of approaching these. And, you know, you, you, know, you had the sort of modular features of the synthesis as well, meaning that you could, you know, start with, you, know, you you could mix and match, you know, different nucleotide triphosphates and combine them in different ways. And, and of course, you know, 
a lot of combinations didn't work, um, but they were able to make, you know, dozens and dozens of compounds this way really early on in the discovery effort. And, you know, it's kind of to your point about that, like, um, uh, you know, build, make, test, uh, learn cycle, um, you know, essentially just, just getting all that information really early in the program, you know, it kind of tells you, you know, what's important, you know, at, at high level and kind of what parts of the molecule have flexibility, what parts don't, you know, wh where is this, okay, maybe it looks promising to make some changes over here, but not so much over here. And so I think it, you know, just provides that kind of high level view of like, you know, where to put your efforts, where to put your chips. Wow. And so how readily available were like, so it sounds like this enzyme was very promiscuous, right? If you're able to accommodate all these different um, nucleo bases and whatnot. Yeah, I think, you know, I would, I would never have, you know, predicted it, you know, but I, I think I, I try to avoid, you know, predicting too many things right in advance you know, enzymes <laughs> sure. kind of like surprise you um a lot of times so so yeah i think it i think it's very surprising um and i think it, you know certainly one of the you know interesting aspects um of that work was that that the enzyme was so flexible um you know certainly i don't think if you had taken a poll of biochemists uh you know just ask them hey how many do you think you could make like you know you know 60 different like cdns with you know this this human enzyme you know, I don't think, you know, I don't think many hands would have been raised. Yeah, yeah. No. I, I think that, you know, this reminds me of something my PhD advisor used to say is like, think long enough about a problem to convince yourself to try an experiment, but not so long that you're going to talk yourself out of it. I think this is a great example of that, you know, so it's really cool. Yeah. Okay, so John, I liked how you kind of started to um, bleed into the next question, which was that the CDNs that Discovery Chemistry was making were about, were I guess, bound through this phosphodiester bond. But ultimately, what we took into the clinic was a phosphothiodiester, which, to be honest, I remember when um, all of y'all were working on this project, I had no idea what that even was. Um, and so I'm really excited for you to kind of walk all of our um, listeners through um, what that uh, functional group looks like. And then also, how did you as a biocat protein engineering team go on to extend the re go on to extend the reactivity to this new functional group as well? In biocalysis, you know, this is nothing new, right? We, we change the stereoselectivity of enzymes all the time. But um, one thing we could see was that, you know, we had a bunch of different wild types on hand, and they all had the same issue, right? They were all giving, you know, uh, the, the diastereomer we didn't want. Um, if, if we, you know, fed it a mixture of, of the different diastereomeric substrates. So um, we sort of looked into more of the, the kind of structural causes of what might be giving this result. And, you know, it, it was fairly clear from, you know, kind of crystal structures and modeling that um, it was actually the metal cofactor that was sort of, um, you know, causing this kind of stereoselect, uh, the, I guess the substrate selectivity, you know, kind of selecting against um, reacting with certain diastereomers of substrate. Um, and so uh, essentially the, the key to unlocking that was just to change the metal cofactor. So we've been using magnesium, which is kind of the normal you know, metal cofactor you use for um, a nucleotide dependent enzyme. Um, and so just changing that to kind of more thiophilic metal, um, cobalt, manganese, or zinc, you know, um, those were all effective and in fact kind of unlocked um, the, the reactivity that we wanted. Nostron, I, I think... You know, you alluded earlier to the fact that you had to, you know, make this nucleoside while our protein engineering uh, team was developing an actual CDN enzyme that, that uh, a CGAS enzyme that could make the CDN. So um, 
you alluded a little bit to this earlier, but if you wanted to highlight a handful of things um, that the team did in the meantime to sort of keep the program going, what, what would those things be? So as I um, alluded earlier, I mean, in our original synthesis, we had uh, no studio control at the phosphorus center. So we were making four diastermers at the final step, and um, we had to rely on um, the tedious reverse phase chromatography to, to separate the desired uh, isomer. Um, so then um, for our uh, next delivery, um, to avoid this wasteful chromatography and also to save time, uh, we developed a chiral auxiliary approach using phosphorus. Uh, for amidate chemistry um, uh, to improve the stereochemistry at phosphorus, and, and, and that really helped us to make one isomer of our desired cyclic dinucleotide. Um, another um, thing we did was uh, to develop a novel um, pH swing crystallization technique to purify and isolate our active pharmaceutical ingredient or API. Um, this again, all of these developments uh, helped us to remove this uh, chromatography as a purification technique, and it saved a lot of time. And as we all know, I mean, speed is a key factor when we are producing large quantities of material uh, to meet our clinical needs. So, so for the pH swing, so I mean, we use that term all the time, but do you mean that you you pulled the um, the molecule of interest into a different phase and then sort of changed the pH to make it crash out? Like, is that kind of what this means? Yeah, because this uh, um, API that we were working was a B-sodium salts, right? So by uh, adjusting the pH, whether it's a free form or is a B-sodium salt, we could play around with the solubility of this compound and, and really leverage that um, to crystallize the compound out from the desired solvent reaction system. Yeah, and I also liked um, your ability to use a chiral auxiliary to remove chromatography. That's like a nice trick that um, I know we like to use in the early space to kind of get the API that we need. And a lot of the auxiliaries are actually like pretty cheap. They're like, you know, from natural products like menthol and all of that other kind of good stuff. Um, so, John, Seagas for the win. We're going to wrap this up. Uh, in the Nature paper, you describe how, you know, you went about evolving Seagas to ultimately make the CDN that we were interested in to take into the clinic. Can you walk us through what some of the key takeaways were from that work? Yeah. So, um, well, yeah. So I think kind of starting at the beginning, right? So the, you know, every kind of direct evolution project we run, there, there's always a, a crosstalk between evolution and process development. So that's kind of what we did. So, you know, we started the evolution campaign. You know, got a more um, active enzyme, and 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 then at that point, you know, we could you know collaborate with you know chemistry colleagues and you know you know other people in the department to to, to really kind of work on um, you know optimizing this reaction. And so in this case, I think more than any other project I've worked on, there was just you know a huge amount to be gained from that kind of reaction optimization. Playing around with like different buffers, adding co-solvent um, had a big effect on this reaction, which is. Which is weird, right? Because all the substrates are totally soluble. Usually, you just think about adding co-solvent to bring substrates into solution. So there was just like a ton of optimization uh, that went into, and then so those kind of innovations we could then feed back into the evolution process to kind of make further improvements, right? Um, so it was a really nice um, collaboration um, with Nostron and and the other chemists who were working on it, because you know they were you know improving the reaction, and then we were. Um, you know, kind of translating those improvements into the evolution. So it, it was a really nice um, collaboration. Can you 
John, can you give our listeners a sense of sort of, you know, how many rounds of evolution you do, how long that stuff takes, um, you know, ultimately how many mutations did you end, end up introducing in, into the Seagas variant? Yeah, so um, so in this case, we needed uh, 10 rounds of evolution um, to, to get Seagas to a good place. Um, you know, typically a, a round of evolution takes three to four weeks. Um, that was that was true for some of this project. So the actual you know project unfolded over a longer time period. There were certain places where we you know paused the evolution to try to you know improve our understanding of, of the reaction to kind of better better drive the evolution. So um, so in terms of calendar time, it took longer um, than that. But you know each individual round you know three or four weeks, and then um, kind of towards the end of the project, you know we we wanted to be more thoughtful about you know which um, mutations we were introducing. So then we would kind of do extra extra assays at, at the end of every round to kind of make sure we had confidence in the variant we were going forward with. Um, and so in the, in the end, the, the CS variant um, that we described in the paper had 20 mutations relative to the wild type. So how many residues on this enzyme? So like a percent wise, what you, is that like a lot of the protein? Yeah, 400 residues. So no, it's, it's not like a huge, um, huge number of mutations. Um, okay. So like 5%. The total. Okay. But were they like in the active site? Were those active site mutations or? Yeah, I mean, it's a, yeah, it's a great question. I mean, you know, certainly some were kind of in that sort of first sphere, um, you know, near the um, active site. You know, we generally, we kind of find the, you know, more enrichment sort of you know, maybe near the active site, but not directly in the active site. Um, but, you know, in general, we see, you know, mutations all over the protein. And, and some of them are very hard to rationalize, like why it's having a, a big effect. Um, and, you know, certainly it's possible to, you know, to go in and try to, try to figure it out, you know, usually on a, on a program that's moving fast, you know, we, we just you know, keep moving fast and, and don't try to, um, necessarily understand the role of each individual mutation. Cause it, you know, it can be, um, you know, quite, quite extensive, you know, to, to answer that. Yeah. I mean, this enzyme sounds like it might've been derived from like a noble beast or something. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Yeah, well, actually, it's funny. Yeah, the, the enzyme that we started with, so it's uh, actually started, it's came from the bald eagle enzyme. So that was just um, based on genome mining that there's no eagles um, were harmed in the course of this work. Um, you know, just, um, basically, the, the gene synthesis, um, you could just, you know, go into the database and then, you know, type in your sequence and then um, ask a gene synthesis company to make whatever gene you want for you. That's awesome. That's great. Uh, so it sounds like, um, John, you made a really great enzyme that had origins from the eagle, um, <laughs> but no eagles were harmed in, in the process, just to be clear. Um, not, so Nastron, I guess, uh, John hands you this enzyme. How do you go about, um, I guess, developing a commercial route um, in developing this biocap process? So great question. So our main goal as a process chemist is to design the most direct route from commodity uh, chemicals to active pharmaceutical ing ingredients. And we would use whatever ways or tools it takes to get there, which most of the time it results in invention of new methodology that uh, like the one that we are talking today. So for this program, um, it, it, again, it seems really logistic that biocatalysis um, is the way to go for end game microcytization reaction. 
Um, and then, um, and so now I want to give you like a, a little bit of uh, perspective, like what it's like as a process chemist to work on a biocatalytic reaction. So when we compare this with like hemocatalysis, I mean, there are some factors that we have to look into. For example, uh, we want to think about how to optimize the enzyme loading, how to develop an extraction or crystallization technique that can reject the enzyme from our process. Um, and then maybe something else on another example that maybe was unique for this program is that we found the quality of this C-gas enzyme impacts the reaction performance. We observed some background hydrolysis of uh, thiotriphosphate intermediates that we later found is correlated with the uh, degradative enzymes that were present in the crude enzyme. So we later were able to solve it by adding a washing and the treatment protocol uh, for our enzyme. So, um, and then something else I want to say is that um, we also always look into developing one-pot processes, especially for enzymatic reaction. Um, um, because, I mean, integration of uh, several biocatalytic transformation in a multi-enzyme cascade system uh, is very interesting because enzymes are not only selective, but they are also compatible with each other, um, of course, within certain range of operating conditions. So we were trying to benefit from this specificity and thought maybe we could also think about developing a multi-enzymatic cascade reaction. So um, that's also something else that um, we looked into for this program. Okay, we have a kinase, we have a C-gas. It sounds like isolating these uh, triphosphates is challenging. So Nastron, what did we do? Can you walk us through how we eventually tied all these pieces together to make a process? Yeah, sure. Just if it's okay, I just want to step back a bit, right? We just kind of give a high level overview of the process development because like our goal was to translate this method into an efficient, operationally safe, sustainable and robust process, right? So we first started with reaction optimization. So it's like a significant effort devoted to high throughput experimentation, mechanistic understanding to enable reaction optimization because we wanted to improve yield, right? There was a lot of factors we looked at, temperature, pH, co-solvent, order of addition, and so many more. Um, it's kind of trying to understand what are the byproducts we try to eliminate it. And again, more importantly, we wanted to reduce the reaction volume. Um, and also um, we looked at reaction stability and scalability, making sure that it's robust across the scales. Um, and then something else I want to add to that is about the isolation. Um, uh, so as I said before, early on, we were using chromatography. And um, once we developed this method, then we were also able to um, develop an innovative extraction and crystallization method to directly isolate our compound. In a, as a single diastereomer, um, which had a very high purity, and we only observed trace level of residual enzymes. So I think overall, the, the key innovation of this process was that all these five transformations were run in one single pot. Um, we didn't isolate or purify any of the triphosphate intermediates, and um, the yield were greatly improved. And of course, the reaction volume and waste generation in compared with the first delivery approach, the phosphorus tree chemistry was, um, it was reduced more than 90%. Wow. Damn. Yeah. <laughs> Way to punctuate that, Nas. <laughs> so I guess on that note, we can 
uh, send you both off. And thank you so much for being part of our uh, first episode of season two. It was a delight to have you both here and hear about uh, all of the awesome, uh, both biocatalysis, protein engineering, and process chemistry that went on to make these CDNs. We will be sure to include a structure so folks can follow along. And um, thank you, Nas and John, for being here. It was a really great time. Thanks for listening to the Farm to Table podcast. This would not have been possible without our fabulous producer, Mark Partridge, and listeners like you. Be sure to check our episode credits where you'll find more details about the show, as well as links to anything that we've discussed during the show. If you find yourself craving even more info, you can find us both on Twitter. I am at Danny the Chemist, and LC can be found at, at, at Dr. LC Squared. But of course, our show also has a handle, and that is at Farm to Table Pod farm with a ph in case you were wondering where you'll find some behind the scenes action future episodes and sneak peeks and likely some random posts posts about chemistry snacks and where whatever else of course uh we'd love to hear from you so please uh, interact with us on twitter feel free to post any chemistry papers merc chemistry papers that uh, that you found particularly memorable and that maybe you want us to build an episode around so stay tuned folks